Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'll be keeping you company for the next hour with more great guests and conversations. Coming up on today's show, we'll be taking a closer look at fraud in the art world, where, would you believe it, counterfeit work now accounts for one-fifth of all art in circulation. We'll examine some of the great fakes of our time and I'll be talking to the director of the Hugh Lane Gallery about how new technologies are helping to detect forgeries and imitations. Later on in the show, the International Monetary Fund has issued its latest warning of a possible hard landing for the global economy if the higher inflation rates keep going. We'll be joined from Washington by Colby Smith, who is the US economics editor with her assessment. And finally, the recent Beijing simulated bombing raids on the island of Taiwan have sparked new speculation about the geopolitical implications of increased activity in the region. So we'll be talking to Amy Hawkins of The Guardian about what's happening in the South China Seas and why all of it is of such strategic importance to global politics. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, Art fraud is estimated to be a multi-billion euro industry, with some experts suggesting that up to 20% of all art in the market could be fake. But how does it happen and why? I'm joined now by the first female director of the Hugh Lane Gallery, Dr Barbara Dawson. She's here to talk to me about the colourful and creative world of fake art. Barbara, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, Mandy. Now, when we're talking about art, terminology is very important fake versus fraud. What's the difference between fake and fraud? Well, I suppose it's um, a monetary difference now. I'm not not a lawyer, but uh, you have a fake painting. And when you sell, if I make a painting that's by Monet and I sell it to you, Mandy, as a Monet that was of, let's say, Waterloo Bridge, and you buy it, giving me millions and millions for it. I think that's when the fraud comes in, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're they're in uh, they're inextricably bound up, I suppose. There was a time historically when um, fake or you know copies of very famous paintings by the likes of Rem- Rembrandt uh, were de rigueur. Though there were schools of people who were copying art. Uh, as a, as, a, as a form of, of flattery and as a form of, I suppose, uh, selling art as well. Well, there was really, there was also apprenticeship. So don't forget, it's, it's, it was, um, you know, it was their um, breadline, you know, it was their income. Mm. So um, Rembrandt was very successful. He went bankrupt twice, but he, you know, he survived and he would have had a school of painters. So they would be paid mm. and they would help him in certain um of his work. So, and then you sometimes have the school of uh, Rembrandt and that would be a work that was done in Rembrandt's studio by one of his pupils in the style of. Mm. The same with Leonardo da Vinci and interesting with Leonardo da Vinci, he had um, um apprentices as well who went on to become very famous artists in their own right. Mm. It's when you have people who, let's say there was a great one, uh, uh, what was his name? Han van Meegeren who was a fantastic um, forger of Vermeer's. 
And he, um, he, he, he was just really was annoyed at about sort of, um, uh, being rejected in when he was an artist, a very good technical artist, but they said he lacked originality. So to, he took his revenge by developing a technique whereby he was able to age the painting, putting it in the oven with Bakelite cover on it and it cracked like a, you know, very aged painting. Mm. And so he, um, had sold Vermeer's as um, originals. And that's both a a wonderful faker and a fraud, Mm. but they were authenticated at the time. And then Tom Keating was the famous English um, forger who really, he just railed against art dealers. One was furious with the art colleges for not recognizing his talent. The other was furious with art dealers, just using it as a commodity buying and selling. But Tom Keating was amazing. I mean, he he faked Rembrandts, he faked Constables, he faked, uh, faked Renoirs. And in fact, he actually got off in the end. He was caught, but he got off in the end um, due to illness and saying that, you know, it, it, anyway, he get, he did get off. And now people collect the Tom Keating uh, fake, <laughs> yeah. and the pro, yeah, that that that's 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 the uh, the evolution of fraud within the art world is an excel yeah. in itself an art form. Um, just the the advancement of I suppose uh, the techniques that fraudsters have used over the years uh, to to deceive and to to reproduce very famous paintings. And um, how has technology helped uh, uh, advance fraud in the art world? Well, I suppose that the, the, uh, it, it goes together. Like we have now uh, even greater technology in um, ageing paintings, dating paintings and all of that, which we wouldn't have had 200 years ago so we would have been by the eye. But at the same time, I suppose we also have uh, greater you know, uh, techniques of, of applying the paints. But with the painting mm. itself, technology is more in the sense of um, dating a painting, carbon dating or something like that. If you take the Neudler scandal, where where there was a Chinese man turning out perfect Jackson Pollocks and perfect Rothkos. Um, So the way that that was discovered, particularly with the Rothko, is that he mistakenly used a blue I dated the painting, let's say, 1970 or something, you know, 1968 or something. And this blue had only come on the market and been created, let's say, about 1975, you know, around those dates. So then they knew that that painting had to be a fake. Yeah, I read about that that case, actually, and he made millions out of that and was quite the gentleman around the circuit as well, wasn't he? He was. Well, he was the grandson of Armand Hammer, who was the famous um, um, industrialist who um, uh, famously uh, sent over a lot of scientists and uh, medics when the um, Chernobyl uh, disaster happened. But this was his grandson. And he had other businesses as well as Neudler. And Freeman was the president who actually sold the paintings to these very disgruntled, as you can imagine now, yes. uh, people who, you know, 8 million, 8.5 million for a Rothko. And then it was painted in a garage somewhere in downtown New York yes. by a very accomplished um, Chinese person. There, though, the provenance was a bit odd. Mm. You know, the provenance is like, where has it come out of? And um, that was a bit uh, questionable. And I suppose the provenance really is is what it's all about when it comes to selling and there's such huge 
um, numbers involved in in those paintings now. I think half a billion for for a Van Gogh a couple of years ago. Um, oh, yeah. But when it comes oh. to fakes, uh, what is the attitude of investors or even indeed museums like yourself to actually owning one um, and using it on display? Yeah, well, I mean, you hope to God, you know, I mean, you, you look at your collection. Now, ours dates back to uh, approximately 1840. And um, whilst maybe some uh, paintings are still misattributed, you know, mightn't be quite the artist that we thought, but it would have been a very similar artist. We have one definite uh, fake, and that's our little Caro, and it's called Landscape with Peasants, which was had a very interesting history. It came out of France and it went up to Scotland, where it was with uh, a dealer, a gallery that... Um, uh, dealt in, in coral paintings. He was 19th century, brilliant, brilliant, beautiful artist, uh, French landscape primarily. And um, Scotland had a great uh, following for coral. So, you know, there's a big market for it, which mm. went into the collection of a man, industrial called James Stats Forbes. And when he died, his corals came on the market. And Hugh Lane uh, encouraged, uh, asked for them to be shown in Dublin, which they were, and encouraged people to buy uh, these works as part of what the Municipal Gallery of Modern Art, now the Hugh Lane Gallery. And thank God so many people did. But this little coral was uh, meant to have been, was purchased by the Prince of Wales in support of the collection. And then it was um, deemed a fraud by people. Very quickly it comes. There's, there's experts out there that really noses are in the right place mm. and they really say, oh, this isn't right. And so there was absolute murder about this one. And um, anyway, it went into the collection. Hugh Lane bought it back and uh, Prince of Wales gave another one. But subsequently, we found out that it is, there's a Hungarian artist called Mezele. And it's an exact replica of the Mezele, except it's tiny and the Mezele is huge. But it isn't even by Mezele. It's by somebody who copied the big Mezele on a little form, at, signed it and brought it to Scotland and sold it in the 19th century. It could have been a very accomplished student who might have been qualified and needed money mm. and saw it in, 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 an, in a gallery. So, you know, it's a very interesting story. And in that way, we, we show it as exactly what it is. It's a copy after a mezzale, and it has a very interesting um, provenance. Yeah, very often the background story to these fakes are nearly, you know, they're, they're, they're fascinating. They're fascinating. Um, absolutely. Um, just the, the art world is seen as something that's very cultural and I suppose you'd associate it with a certain type of, of person, but there's a murkier side to it really, um, <laughs> isn't there? Um, there's that, you know, and, and, and I suppose with the, the figures that we're talking about, there's always that um, opportunist, but, you know, there is that other side to the art world that people don't necessarily uh, think about. Ah, there is. Well, you see, as you just mentioned there, um, the amounts of money uh, some artworks are selling for, and that brings in, you know, all sorts of, um, shall we say, you know, interesting uh, people and interesting um, uh, slants on how uh, the market should be um, manipulated or, you know, used. Now, in fairness, you know, I mean, an awful lot of it is is absolutely authentic. And I suppose we tend to kind of have a look at the ones that are uh, we raise an eyebrow at. But it is, there are times when they, you know, uh, paintings being bought and sold or artworks being bought and sold and then huge amounts of money. And did the money transfer hands or did it go 
backwards and forwards between people, you know, just to keep the prices high. Mm. Uh, you look at the Leonardo Salvador Mundi, which was sold for $450.3 million. Mm. Um, and uh, incredible. And now there are question marks over that as whether it's really the work of the wonderful restorer who restored the work rather than the actual artist. And so when there's that amount of money involved, there's a lot of people around that mightn't, as we say, be quite... Um, kosher. But on the other hand, I mean, it is the business of both auction houses and galleries to be absolutely scrupulously, um, you know, straightforward. Because look again what happened to Neudler. I mean, they're gone, mm. dead, finished. So, you know, it's not, it doesn't really benefit. Um, certainly the, the, the auction houses and the galleries are, I would say, very scrupulous mm. in trying to weed out the uh, anything that's um, going to cause scandal or indeed uh, threaten their livelihood. But it is, um, it can be, a game is probably a wrong word, but there are people who have um, a wonderful talent, not recognized, might have a grudge, and they delight in, you know, filtering mm. these works into the market. A bit like some people in the wine business who have done the same thing, you know, f filtering things in, um, into the market. And, um, you know, they might have other people in play to keep prices up. And, you know, there's a lot, lots of other issues involved. Absolutely. And I guess just as we mentioned, technology is helping the fraudsters. They're also helping on the policing side in terms of detection. Who yeah. who actually, just finally, Barbara, because um, time is running out on us, who actually polices this from an international perspective? Is there a body who kind of holds there all the information? There is a body. Yeah. Yeah, there is. And if anything, God forbid, gets um, stolen from us or or indeed anything of value that's stolen, there is an in you, you report it to this international body and it goes up on their website, which is fantastic from our point of view, so that if somebody comes to you with something in, and you go, well, where did you get this? And then you there, you can access this website and then you can see if this work has been stolen. Mm. So that's fantastic. It, it's very important for us galleries and indeed for, for all the collectors. Absolutely. But, you know, I guess mm. I guess technology is something you you have to depend on a lot for security and the advancement of those makes things harder for those type of thefts. Of those thefts, well, I mean, every museum and, you know, ga gallery, I'd say, uh, you know, has to keep up with technology with regard to their security systems. But also uh, people, invigilators are also very important, you know, in that. But it's tracking a work as well. It's it's, it's hugely uh, improved, you know, when you, you um, have these, these international um, policing as well. And that and that and now with the speed with which this can be um, informed is fantastic also. Absolutely. Well, Barbara, thank you very much for giving us a little insight into your world. That was Barbara Dawson, Director of the Hugh Lane Gallery. Barbara, thank you very much. Thank you. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, one of the big questions that was facing President Joe Biden when he touched down in Ireland this week was whether or not the US should continue to voice their support for Taiwan. Last week, we all know that Beijing simulated some bombing raidings on Taiwan uh, whilst the Navy there encircled the island. So we wanted to try and put some context on that story as it unfolds. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Amy Hawkins, who is the senior China correspondent for The Guardian newspaper. Amy, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Great. Thanks for having me. 
Now, before we get into the recent manoeuvres and the politics, I suppose, around this story, can you just give um, our listeners some of the context around the ongoing story and the relationship between China and Taiwan? Sure, yeah. So the context is that China has always regarded Taiwan as part of its territory. Um, Taiwan was the place where the nationalists fled from mainland China after losing to the communists in the civil war back in the 20th century. And um, since then, China has pursued a one-China policy whereby they regard Taiwan basically as a renegade province that needs to be reunited with the mainland. And Xi Jinping, China's current ruler, hasn't ruled out the use of force to achieve that goal. Yeah, now that's the the government perspective and the high level, I suppose, view of things. But what's the perspective of of ordinary Chinese people on the the Taiwanese issue? Um, And does that differ from the government's position? Um, Well, it's hard to do any kind of accurate opinion polling in China. Um, But certainly the kind of mood among a lot of Chinese people is basically in agreement with the government line, not that they necessarily want to invade Taiwan or pursue any kind of conflict, but that they regard it as part of Chinese territory and is, you know, one day will be reunited with the mainland. Mm. And it's become a consistent part of the geopolitical discussions that are ongoing at the moment. But just let's move to what happened last week. What were the motivations of, of those war games, if you like, um, on China's part last week? So the war games were prompted by a visit by Taiwan's president Tsai Ing-wen to America, where she met with Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Um, and China opposes any kind of diplomats, Western diplomats or foreign diplomats meeting with Taiwanese officials or anything that might endorse the idea of Taiwan being a separate country from China. So um, the meeting was um, very carefully planned to happen on American soil rather than Taiwanese soil, partly as a bid to kind of tone down what the Chinese reaction might be. And we saw that the war games that China launched in response weren't as dramatic as the ones we saw last year when Nancy Pelosi, Mm. Kevin McCarthy's predecessor, went to Taiwan. Um, But still, you know, Kevin McCarthy is a very high-ranking American politician and China reacted very angrily, both rhetorically and with these war games, to him meeting Taiwan's president. Yes, and when Nancy Pelosi did visit Taiwan, it caused a huge um, upheaval. And I just, I, I think it, it would be a good time to try and explain the US interest in, in the Taiwan situation. Yeah, so um, America officially kind of recognises the People's Republic of China's policy. So um, on a high level, it you know has agreed with the Chinese government's view that there is only one China Um, And it doesn't formally recognise Taiwan as a separate country. But that said, it has always promised to defend Taiwan in the event of any aggressive actions by China. And Joe Biden, in comparison with previous American presidents, has been much more explicit about saying that he would defend Taiwan militarily were China to launch an invasion. Yeah, he's been very strident in his support. Has that caused him any um, difficulties back home? Yeah, I mean, people, um, you know, China watchers and analysts are quite divided on what's the best way for the American government to proceed when it comes to their statements about Taiwan. Certainly, some people think that in making such strong statements in defense of Taiwan, Joe Biden is needlessly provoking the Chinese government who might be tempted to kind of assert itself in response. For years, the official American policy has been one that's called strategic ambiguity, Mm. which is a kind of complicated way of saying that they won't show their hand and they hope that that ambiguity will deter China from taking any action. 
Mm. And I suppose the ambiguity um, you could also equate to to neutrality uh, on the issue. What, what type of allies other than the US do Taiwan have? Taiwan has very few allies. I think it's um, it's down to about 12 now. Honduras recently switched ties from from recognizing Taiwan to China. Um, and its allies are all kind of very small countries who might either have, feel some kind of ideological allegiance with another small country who's in the shadow of a more threatening neighbor, or they're receiving lots of money and grants from Taiwan as a reason to to maintain that relationship. But mm. yeah, it's a handful of very small countries that still support or still recognize Taiwan. And Amy, what about the EU? We've seen Emmanuel Macron and even Ursula von der Leyen visit China on a state visit. Did they present a unified voice on the European position in relation to Taiwan? I mean, definitely not. Macron um, took, you know, made statements that were a lot more closer to China's line. And in China, Macron's visit was seen as a big win for Xi Jinping. He made these comments about not wanting to be drawn into a conflict with Taiwan or not wanting to be, I think he used the term vassal state for America or to support American interests in the region. Hmm. Whereas Ursula von der Leyen made much more cautious statements, you know, some might call them hawkish about the risks of engaging with China and wanting to de-risk the relationship. Um, so yeah, by no means was there a united front from the Europeans. And now I think Anna Baerbock, the um, the German foreign minister, is in China trying to kind of present a more united front, but it's clear that not everyone is in agreement. Yeah, and there's some who think that maybe Macron's cozying up to the Chinese might have something to do with trying to get them to be an ally on the Ukrainian war. Uh, what do you think of that proposition? Yeah, so I mean, if Macron was trying to look for, um, sub, you know, Xi Jinping's support on the Ukraine issue, that he certainly didn't achieve that. You know, Xi Jinping's been very clear about his support for Putin. He hasn't called Zelensky, like there were rumours that he was going to. Um, so if Macron's aim was to try and get Xi Jinping's support with regard to the Ukrainian issue, he didn't succeed there. What he you know, did succeed is potentially boosting French and European business interests in China, which was another one of the goals of the visit. Yeah, you mentioned the business interests there. So a lot of people think that this um, alliance between various different states is about economic development. Some would point to political freedom and even the balance of power on a kind of global scale. Are there any other issues um, that are lying underneath the surface? I've heard semiconductors mentioned a couple of times. Is there anything else that people should be aware of in relation to the background of what's causing this conflict now? Yeah, I mean, semiconductors is a big issue, particularly with regards to Taiwan. Um, Taiwan is home to TSMC, which is the world's biggest and most important semiconductor company. Um, and, you know, semiconductors are in everything from cars to fridges to phones to military equipment. Um, and last year, the American government has specifically tried pass the CHIPS Act, which was specifically trying to kind of cut off China's access to the most high-tech chip-making equipment. Um, and all the major powers are now kind of in a race to secure their semiconductor supply chains, whether it is through making sure there's stability in Taiwan or boosting their domestic production. Um, but that's definitely going to be a big trigger point in terms of what 
what countries decide to do next. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'm talking to Amy Hawkins, who is the China correspondent for The Guardian newspaper. And we're chatting about the ongoing tensions between China and Taiwan. Amy, can you just give us a flavour of the type of activity that happened in those war games last week? And does it cause disruption to the people of Taiwan when they're happening? Yeah, so the war games that we saw this week, um, they weren't as extreme as last year that we had in response to Nancy Pelosi's visit, but they did seem to be more targeted, which led more analysts, some analysts to think that, you know, this was a simulation of how China might actually choose to attack um, in the event of an invasion. Um, on the ground in Taiwan, you know, people have got very used to these kind of war games and these drills, and they didn't actually make that many headlines this time around, although politicians in Taiwan do try and ramp up the importance of the issue, particularly ahead of their elections next year, where the issue about the relationship with China is likely to be a big factor. Hmm. I think when we're talking about this uh, a lot, we also we always focus on the position of external countries. But what about Taiwan itself? What's its own strategy for maintaining independence? And you talk there about the president going to meet Kevin McCarthy. Are they outward looking in terms of trying to create more allies? Yeah, Tsai Ing-wen has been very proactive hmm. in trying to kind of boost Taiwan's relationship with other countries and boost its number of allies. Um, in the election next year, it's not clear which party will win at all. So Tsai Ing-wen's party is the more pro-independence party, whereas the main opposition party is the KMT, which is the nationalists, and they advocate for closer ties with Beijing, It, in part as a way of maintaining stability. You know, lots of KMT people argue that if you have a close relationship with Beijing, they're less likely to invade. Um, but Taiwanese, you know, an increasing number of Taiwanese people don't see themselves as Chinese. They don't want any relationship with the mainland. And these kind of war games and what we saw happening in Hong Kong a few years ago has only increased Taiwanese people's feeling that, you know, life um, under Chinese rule is not one they want to contemplate. Mm. And I frequently hear people asking the question about what's the possibility uh, of the situation escalating in the short term. And interesting discussion last week from a defence expert who was talking about short term and defence terms is about three years. And when you talk to economists about uh, a short term uh, evaluation, it's three months. But let's look at the prospects for maybe a peaceful resolution on the conflict where we're celebrating 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement here in Ireland at the moment. So resolution to conflict is very high in our agenda. What role or what prospects for a peaceful resolution are there for the conflict? And what role, if any, could other countries such as the US themselves or or Japan play in a process like that? I mean, it's hard to know what um, resolution really means in this context. Mm. What um, what Taiwanese leaders, you know, including the president, advocate for is the maintenance of the status quo. They don't actually... Um, mainstream politicians aren't actually advocating for formal independence because that kind of declaration would be considered likely to provoke Beijing. Um, so, you know, it's a kind of slightly a zero-sum game in terms of the independence question. You can't keep everyone happy with that. But what um, in terms of maintaining peace, what a lot of people in Taiwan hope for is a maintenance of the status quo. Hmm. And in in that short term, where do you see this going or what do you anticipate might happen next? Will it continue to be a little pawn in the the bigger geopolitical chess game? Yeah, I I think it's easy, um, you know, particularly in Taiwan to maybe become um, not jaded, but like complacent about Hmm. these kind of war games because they happen so frequently. Um, And probably, you know, now that uh, 
sign visit with Kevin McCarthy has finished, that will be the end of this round of military intimidation. But you know, you do see an increasing number of Chinese jets crossing the Meridian Line into Taiwanese airspace every day. Um, you do see a kind of encroaching number, uh, an increasing number of Chinese vessels in Taiwanese waters and elsewhere in the region. Um, and there are no signs that under Xi Jinping that China is going to back down in terms of its regional goals. Mm. And do you get any sense that there's um, a normalization of this type of activity, maybe even what's happening in Ukraine with Russia, this war of attrition slowly creeping in, that we become less um, focused on on things like the war games that happened and it just becomes part of the news cycle? Yeah, I think that's definitely a risk. And um, I mean, certainly with Ukraine, um, lots of people think it will have given Xi Jinping pause for thought, both in terms of how much it's dragged on for Putin and how strong the Western response has been. Um, the Taiwan situation is not completely analogous, but um, there are lessons there. But yeah, I think there's definitely a, you know, a chance that this kind of fades into the new cycle and the new normal becomes Chinese military threat when actually they are increasing. And and my final question to you, Amy, um, if I might, is is around the the Ukraine um, war as well, and just that question of sanctions that we saw uh, that were put in place by the US and many other countries on Russia. Is there any talk of sanctions around the activity of China uh, in relation to to Taiwan at the moment, or is there even any notion that something like that might affect them, or? Is China simply too big and too prevalent in in external economies to to for for other countries to go down that road? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people think that yeah, exactly as you said, China is kind of too big and too interwoven with the international economy to sanction as effectively um, as Russia has been. That said, you know, China is clearly not complacent about those risks and has been taking various moves in the past few years to become more resilient to sanctions, whether that's by, you know, onshoring its supply chains, um, building up its security of food and energy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know what the Western response to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan would be. But the stakes are definitely higher, both because the invasion would be more disastrous for the global economy. Um, and also because China's economy is so hard to sanction. Well, Amy, it's certainly a complex and difficult issue to get your head around. And I really appreciate you taking the time to give us your insights on it today. That was Amy Hawkins, who's Senior China Correspondent of The Guardian. Amy, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. And after the break, a downbeat forecast from the IMF on uncertainty in the global economy. We'll be joined by the FT Economics Editor to discuss it all after the break. You're welcome back. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, finally today, fragile economies and sticky inflation. These were words that were used by the IMF to sum up the state of the global economy. But what does it all mean? And joining me now to discuss is Colby Smith. She's the US economics editor for the Financial Times. Colby, thank you for being with us on News Talk today. Happy to be here. Now, uh, what I detected in this anyway was nervousness with not a lot of optimism. It's a kind of step back from their previous report just two months ago. What were your main takeaways from uh, the IMF economic report uh, this week? 
So nervousness, I think, is is exactly the way I would describe it. Um, there wasn't much in terms of a shift in the growth forecast that the IMF published in terms of the trajectory of uh, the global economy more broadly. Um, but what we heard um, was greater emphasis on the risks uh, at the current juncture. Um, so in, in light of, of recent uh, stress across the regional banking system here in the U.S., um, uh, which also you know, had spread to some European banks as well. Um, that's really kind of upended expectations about how uh, much the economy is really going to grow here and, and what this all means for, for central banks as well, who are actively trying to cool down their respective economies uh, to get inflation under control. Uh, so the, the message that we heard loud and clear um, is that, you know, People have to be very vigilant here. Uh, that was the message from the managing director of the IMF um, on, on Thursday morning. Um, it, it was that uh, vigilance is paramount. And I think that's uh, the major takeaway of uh, this uh, year's meeting. Yeah, because there wasn't a, a tremendous shift in the figures, if you like, um, but the sentiment was a lot gloomier. So perhaps the narrative didn't exactly fit the numbers, as it were. But let's just delve a bit into what is causing that uncertainty um, from the risk point of view that you mentioned there. So what about inflation? What did the IMF uh, predict on, on the inflationary front in terms of what policymakers might do to continue to, to curb that inflation rate? So the concern here is just how quickly inflation is is responding to uh, action taken by uh, central banks globally. Uh, the problem um, over the last couple of months it, is that it just seems to be stickier than anyone really anticipated. It's been harder to root out those price pressures, and in turn, um, you know, you're seeing higher than expected inflation prints um, just over the last couple months in particular. And the worry there is that if uh, you know central banks don't get a handle on this soon, and the longer that these elevated uh, levels persist, the harder it could be uh, to to root them out in the end. Um, as people you know come to adjust their expectations, that inflation is going to stay higher uh, for longer. Um, so there's a bit of a, of a, of a time problem at, at this stage. Um, we've been dealing with high inflation. Um, you know, for for more than a year at this point, um, at these really elevated levels, and while it's obviously um, you know a relief to see uh, some signs that inflation have peaked, I think the concern is that we're just settling at a higher level, mm. and and so what you hear from Fed officials and from other central bank um, officials around the world is that you know we can't they can't really um stop just yet in terms of uh squeezing their respective economies there's likely going to be further interest rate increases um to come um most notably from the fed um likely the ecb the boe as well over in the uk um but uh what that um what that creates then is a little bit more pressure on the financial system, which we know from a recent events has uh, come under, uh, you know, quite a lot of stress um, to a worrying degree. Frankly, it's required governments to step in, and and it perhaps means that there is now tension between the monetary policy objectives that central banks have, as well as their financial stability objectives. Mm. And we'll get into that um, global financial stability uh, report in a second. But just for a moment on the inflation, when they say sticky, what do they mean? 
So it, it just means that it's a, it's a little bit harder to, to root out. It's more pervasive across the economy. It's in segments um, of, of the economy and goods and services um, that once, um, you know, price pressures form uh, in those categories, uh, they, they don't tend to reverse themselves quite quickly. And that's because they're tied up with overall demand in the economy, which often is linked to uh, the labor markets of, of respective economies, um, wage pressures that we've seen over the last uh, year or so um, that have been building. And, uh, you know, the, the concern is that uh, these price pressures feed on themselves. So companies who are facing higher input costs from um, having to increase wages uh, for their workers to keep them on board, uh, they're in turn going to raise prices, which is then in turn going to um, you know, compel others to demand higher wages. And that's the kind of cycle that I think is the is the real nightmare scenario that policymakers are trying to avoid at the moment. Um, but uh, fundamentally, uh, this sticky stickiness in mm. inflation, um, which we can measure through, you know, core prices, which are, you know, when you strip out food and energy prices, which are really volatile, um, you're really looking at like the services sector in particular. That's the the real concern here. Yeah, I think that's a great word. It's pervasive rather than than stubborn. So, yeah. Um, so what was their assessment of the rather swift tightening of monetary policy that we've seen around the globe? So that was a question that I posed to uh, the head of capital markets at the IMF actually this week um, at, at one of the press briefings um, and, and in a separate interview. Uh, because, you know, on the one hand, I think there has been um, some criticism that by moving so quickly to raise interest rates, um, specifically, you know, the Fed relying on really historically large interest rate increases. We've seen similar things from um, Europe's central bank, as well as the, B, uh, the Bank of England as well, um, that, you know, when you move that quickly, um, things break um, along the way. Now, the counterpoint to that is the Fed and other central banks were so kind of behind um, in terms of handling um, the inflation problem that they really just had no choice but to move as aggressively as they did. And they've been lauded for, uh, you know, reversing course um, from their previously kind of patient mm. approach uh, and, and, and uh, you know, adopting um, a new, more uh, forceful uh, act, set of actions. Um, but um, the, the concern now, though, is what do further interest rate increases that might be required to get inflation down, what does that do to uh, financial stability, which obviously is quite tenuous at the moment? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when they're moving quickly and breaking things, perhaps that leads us to, to discuss um, the Silicon Valley Bank developments, because um, a lot of people looking at that as one of the unintended consequences of the swift moving of the rates. What did they say about the banking sector and their response to to those changes? So... Overall, the message um, we hear from the IMF, as well as other officials, frankly, is that the banking system is resilient. Um, you know, there was a series of uh, reforms um, and rule changes after the global financial crisis over a decade ago um, that that made the banking system, especially for those larger institutions, um, much more um, sound, uh, backed by more capital, um, just overall able to, to weather shocks. And 
you know, policymakers point to the 2020 COVID crisis as a, a really important kind of stress point for these banks. And it was notable that we didn't see um, any larger systemic institutions um, come under pressure. But the concern is that, you know, some of these smaller entities who have seen regulations lighten up over time, um, they can be um, just as systemically important as some of these larger institutions, especially if a number of them are coming under stress altogether. And I think the, the big unknown at the current moment is whether there's another um, shoot a drop in terms mm. of another banking failure, let's say um, here in the US, um, or, or if, uh, you know, depositors face another round of, um, of uh, you know, deterioration and confidence. And, you know, they call into question, um, you know, their capacity to store their money in a different bank. And that, again, just leads to um, another crisis of confidence and another bank run. Um, so I, no one really wanted to stick their neck out, it seems, this week in terms of saying everything is, is, um, is uh, done and dusted at this point. Um, and I think that just speaks to the uncertainty of, of where we are and, and how early stages it really is. Mm. There wasn't a lot of uh, quid pro quo that I could see in it. A lot of these reports tend to say on the one hand, on the other hand, and they weren't talking about any kind of positive aspects of it. But just looking at that idea of maybe the banking sector looking forward might contract in terms of lending. Is that not something that they might have looked at as a way to aid the increase in inflation alongside what policymakers are doing? Was there any examination of that? Yes, that was actually a, a, a point that the chief economist at the, the IMF uh, made repeatedly uh, this week. Uh, essentially, he said, in a way, the credit crunch um, that's coming, while we don't really yet know the magnitude of the shock, um, could prove to be helpful in the overall inflation fight. I think the problem, though, is that a banking crisis is a very um, risky way to, to go about uh mm you know, squeezing an economy and, and dampening demand. And it just means that officials now just have a little bit less control over the situation than if they, um, you know, were just methodically raising interest rates and controlling the level of tightening that's happening in the system. Um, so, I, I, yes, I think there's a positive element uh, there, but also quite a lot of caution um, about uh, the, the downside risk scenario. Yeah, and it all comes down to controlling something rather than having something happen by default rather than by design. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm chatting to Colby Smith, who's the US Economics Editor for the Financial Times, about the recent IMF Economic Global Report. Uh, Colby, can I just look towards Europe for a second? Uh, what was their outlook for uh, the European economies? So uh, it, it's always been a little bit more downbeat than I think the what we're seeing on the U.S. front. And, and the concern there is that there are kind of stagflationary um, concerns building um, to a certain extent. You know, you have very high inflation. Um, you have growth uh, quite slow. Um, the U.K. was one of the economies in particular that uh, the IMF was was very, very downbeat on, um, still penciling a re in a recession. Um, but but there also were some positives. We've seen a milder winter, which has meant the energy crisis has not been as severe as as once um, was uh, the concern. Um, but uh, overall, I, I think there's no uh, there's no area where the fund uh, was saying, you know, 
this region has the all clear. Mm. Um, it, it seems like these issues are uh, are quite all encompassing in, in every country. Frankly, it's just a matter of uh, the degree. Yeah, a little bit of of hope on the Irish economy, though. Uh, I saw some expansionary figures for us projected for this year. So maybe uh, we can cling to that and Mm -hmm. look at some uh, upsides for ourselves. Um, One of the other things I I was looking at was um, their long term projections on inflation um, and a sort of maybe I'm interpreting this wrong, but a sort of an, um, an indication that maybe what we're going through now is a sort of inflationary blip and that in the longer term, we'll go back to those much lower interest rates. Did, did you look at any of their long term forecasts to see what they were saying about inflation? Yes. So I think that is uh, aligned with their view that over the medium term, the growth projection is is really quite bleak. Um, This was, uh, you know, you don't often hear about the IMF talking about uh, the longer term horizon. And they've made the point um, at this meeting uh, to emphasize that, um, you know, things don't bounce back, you know, in a really... uh, rapid way, frankly, after we get through the worst of uh, the next year, which they they still suggest, um, you know, we'll see a bottoming out in, mm. in um, 2023 before a rebound. Um, but I, I think when you have a growth projection like that, um, it, it's typically accompanied by uh, lower inflation. Um, if the point is that, you know, demand is suppressed and uh, economies are just kind of chugging along as opposed to really, you know, roaring back um, uh, in terms of growth. Uh, So, uh, you know, together, that just might mean that central banks are going to be grappling more with the issues that they were um, really struggling to contend with prior to the COVID shock, which is just too low inflation, you know, not enough room um, in terms of of their policy interest rates uh, to uh, impact the economy. Um, and, and that that can lead to, you know, uh, really a, a destabilizing economic situation in and of itself. Um, but uh, for everyone who thinks that we're immediately returning to that situation, there are others who say, you know, we're about to enter a period of um, actually more frequent inflation shocks if the global economy is becoming a little bit more fragmented. Um, so it's it's maybe just a little bit too early to, to know um, which direction we're really heading in, but um, it, it's quite clear that neither of those options are, are necessarily ideal. Mm. So, Colby, would your assessment be that um, we were all very optimistic at their last forecast when they revised their traje- uh, projections upwards a little bit? And would you say that their caution, you know, there's a number of factors, but is it that um, developments in the banking sector, which really has uh, changed their uh, trajectory on, on the global economy? Yes, I'd say that's probably one of the the key variables here, um, and I, and I think more to that point, it's just that the the task ahead for central banks mm. has now just been made all the more complicated. Um, so they're already facing a, um, a challenging task before the banking crisis in, in having to deal with high inflation, and now they're having to deal with high inflation and then um, you know a. Uh, a tumultuous financial situation, um, and that's that's just really um, a, a tough uh, thing for these policymakers to balance. Um, so, so I really do think that um, this 
evidence of some kind of fragility in the financial system mm-hmm. uh, is really behind a lot of the, the nervousness that, that we were discussing earlier. Now, before I let you go, Colby, um, President Joe Biden is visiting Ireland at the moment. He's he's visited Belfast and he's visited the Republic of Ireland. Is the visit getting any traction or, or any attention over over there in the States? Yeah, I mean, everyone is is always kind of clued in as to where uh, President Biden is is traveling at the moment. I think that uh, they've been um, definitely kind of enjoying the the missives um, from Ireland from the president um, as well. Uh, this just uh, just happens to be a very very busy week where you know global leaders are are here in Washington D.C. as well. There's inflation data. There's a lot going on. So it's uh, it's just a busy one, I think, all around. Of course, of course. Well, look, it'll be very interesting to see if the policymakers take note of those words of caution coming from the IMF. Uh, But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Colby Smith, the US Economic Editor at the Financial Times. Colby, thank you so much for being with us on News Talk. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast for us on Friday mornings on the News Talk app, which is powered by Golad. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Steve Daunt on research and Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof. And you might want to stay tuned because after that, I'll be here again with On The Record and all your Sunday news. Papers. But for now, from me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.